Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right, good morning, guys. I see that you guys are the true and real Christians here. Brave the great blizzard of 23 to be here. So impressed with you. I feel like this first snow is always a shock, so I can't believe that you guys actually made it over here. Uh, Today, I want to talk about a a heavy and kind of hard topic, which if you've been here before, you know that's not typically my style. I'm up here cracking jokes and clowning and stuff like that. Not a lot of that today, okay? So I'm sorry uh, you braved the snow for nothing. I know that's what you come for. Uh, Today, actually, I have two goals. I want to be clear, and I want to be gentle. Gentle because we're going to be talking a lot about divorce today. Divorce is an evil that has probably affected us all in some way in this room. Maybe not directly, maybe not your own personal family or your own personal life, but somehow peripherally, I feel like it has affected all of us. Um, It's ugly and it's painful, and this verse has been used sometimes to like whack people over the head with it or about it, right? So that's like number one reason why I want to make sure that I am being gentle. I also want to be clear. I want to be razor sharp clear to make sure that this verse comes through with its original intention. with the power to prepare us for something good, uh, not just to destroy, uh, but something that may be hard, uh, something that may be difficult, and maybe even a different interpretation and understanding of this verse uh, than at least I like grew up thinking of it as. I truly did this past week, uh, and this is, this is kind of a rarity for me, I feel like, but I truly did start this week and start my studying and prep and stuff like that, thinking one way about uh, divorce and now have come to a different, slightly different understanding. Um, so, uh, because of that, I want to say uh, what I believe is true. I want to cower behind Scripture and cower behind Jesus' feelings on divorce and not mine, and then uh, let you guys throw bottles and pitchforks or emails, whatever that looks like, uh, afterwards, and uh, we'll just hope uh, and trust in the Scripture and the Holy Spirit that He's going to lead us in the right direction. So, because of all of that, I want to take like an extra second here and just pray uh, one more prayer just for guidance. So, if you would, join me in prayer. God, uh, we come before you humbly now, submitting to your word and to your truth and to your goodness, God. God, I pray that in the midst of just this difficult topic, uh, that you would shine through the clear, that your gospel would come true, your, uh, your love for us would be true in all of our hearts, God. Um, and ultimately, I pray that we would learn more about you and your heart for us, for your world and for your kingdom, God, as we learn more about your feelings on marriage and divorce uh, and singleness, God, I pray that you would guide us. Um, may it be your words and not mine, God. Give us all ears to hear the word that you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here again, Jesus is walking around, minding his own business, healing people and whatnot, and boom, the Pharisees come up, and they say, verse 3, Then the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know they were always trying to trap Jesus. They were kind of like the religious elite of the day. So they were uh, probably me in this scenario, you know, marching up to Jesus thinking you know something as like a pastor or something. You're like, okay, uh, does or is it allowed to divorce your wife for any reason? Also, you should note that the NIV, there's a lot of weird translation stuff in this passage. I don't know why, but it's, it's fraught with a lot of like difficult to translate words. The NIV actually translate this as for any and every reason, and that actually better captures the meaning, at least from my research here. 
So what they're asking here is, is it okay to divorce your wife for basically any reason? They ask, is it legal? Can we divorce? Now, for a little bit of context, the Romans, who were occupying uh, Israel at the time, they believed uh, that divorce from either the man or the woman, uh, initiated by either party, for any reason was totally legal. So at any moment, anybody could divorce anybody else. The Jews allowed for divorce from the man, only the man could initiate, to the woman for a reason, uh, but there was like no possibility that a woman could initiate divorce. All right, now we're going to get even deeper into the weeds. Are you ready for this? So the Pharisees were actually broken up into two different schools of thought. All right, so this is not even Pharisees and Sadducees. We're going even deeper than that. So there was one school called the Shammai School of Pharisees, and they only allowed for divorce after gross indecency. But they kind of disagreed as to what that exactly was, right? And then the Hillel School of the Pharisees allowed for divorce on basically any grounds. Famously, there's actually a story that we have from another historian, not in scripture, uh, that talks about how it was common for Hillel School of Pharisees to divorce their wives if they burned a meal, right? So it was like pretty nitpicky and stupid reasons why people would be allowed to divorce their wife. So you can see here that they're trying to trap Jesus, right? They're like, all right, so here present in this crowd, maybe there's some Romans, there's definitely some Jews, and there's probably these two different schools of Pharisees. Jesus is not going to make any friends by what he says here, right? Jesus snaps back. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And he hits them with the old like Genesis 2. Now, if you recognize that, that's from the very beginning of marriage when God created this institution right alongside creating the world. His first response is basically, no, no, there is no reason. Haven't you read scripture? It starts with this institution that marriage is not meant to be broken. It's never meant to fall apart like this. You guys are debating over here on what's good and what's not and what's an allowable divorce and what's not an allowable divorce. And Jesus is basically saying, like, no, you're supposed to stay married. You're confused right here. So they respond back. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another commits, and marries another commits adultery. You see what they're doing here? They're like, why did Moses do this? Well, what do you think about Moses? See, it's like further trapping Jesus. Moses was like a big deal, so they're like throwing it right back in his face. Why did Moses allow for divorce? Jesus hits them right where it hurts, and he says, Moses only did that because you guys are sinners. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed for divorce. From the beginning, in the garden, before there was sin, there was no reason for divorce. Divorce was only needed because you guys would allow sin to tear apart a marriage. D.A. Carson actually says it uh, in a really, I think, clear way. It's a little bit of a long quote, so hold on. He says, divorce is not part of the creator's perfect design. If Moses permitted it, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred to continued indecency. Therefore, any view of divorce and remarriage taught in either testament that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already o overlooked the basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but as evidence of sin, of hardness, of heart. The fundamental attitude of the Pharisees' question was wrong. 
You see what he's saying there? Basically, like, Jesus responds the way that he did by going all the way back to Genesis 2 to show the Pharisees, like, you're not even asking the right question here. Like, if you're trying to get a way out of your marriages, then you're not even looking at marriage correctly. He's basically saying, and I think that Jesus is too here, uh, both Jesus and D.A. Carson are saying the same thing, that the only way out of this marriage is actually a bad one. Which I think brings me to my main point today. Divorce is always wrong, but sometimes it's necessary. So just in a moment, we're actually going to get into like a deeper discussion of like, when is it appropriate to divorce? And I do believe uh, that Jesus does say that there are times when it is the right option to divorce. But I want you to just keep in mind that it is never a good option. It's never the morally neutral option. It is always as a result of sin and brokenness. It is always as a result of something already going wrong. And sometimes you have to do something wrong to stop something else wrong to keep on going wrong. And I know that's kind of confusing. But I want you to think about it this way, actually. Think about it like uh, when you're like in traffic. You know how sometimes like you have to break the law to actually like do the right thing in traffic. I mean, think about like when an ambulance comes up behind you. Like sometimes you have to do something that otherwise would not be legally permissible so that this ambulance can come past you, right? Sometimes you might have to like make some sort of illegal U-turn because the road is blocked up ahead. That's just sort of like the nature of driving. You're doing something that is wrong so that you can keep from more wrong actually happening. And I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about divorce. I remember one time uh, I was actually touring my family around New Orleans. And I actually turned the wrong way down a one-way street. And Sarah's grandmother was in the back of our car. And uh, she was complaining because the roads are terrible. And she was like, my bones are rattling. And then we start going down this one-way street. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, does she notice that we're going down this wrong way street? I'm like, keep it cool, keep it cool, keep it cool. And then I noticed, like, the street over here was a one-way in the other direction. Like, I was like, oh, I need to turn right over here. Well, no, that's a one-way coming towards this street. That's not good. And it was one of those situations where I was like, all right. My temptation is just to be paralyzed in fear right now and shut this car down. And instead, I'm going to have to keep plowing down with absolute confidence and assurance down this one-way road, uh, hoping that my grandma or Sarah's grandmother does not notice, right? In some ways, that's kind of like what divorce is. Something very, very wrong has happened if you've gotten to a place where you need to have a divorce. And because of that, you are forced to choose to do something that is not good, that is not wrong, or not right, that is not in God's good and perfect plan. That's what divorce is, and that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Today, the main point is that Jesus says divorce is the wrong choice, but sometimes it happens. So, let's talk about when it's permissible. First, let's clarify something important. Divorce can be initiated by the man or the woman. Jesus actually says as much in the same story in Mark 10, 11 through 12. And it says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's basically the same passage, but interestingly enough, Matthew leaves out the women and Mark leaves out the exception for sexual immorality that we'll talk about in a second. So one, both men and women can divorce. And Jesus says you can divorce for sexual immorality, a.k.a. the word porneia in Greek, from which we get the word pornography. So, what does that word mean? Famously, even the Supreme Court doesn't know, if you've, been if you've ever followed any of that, right? They once famously ruled that they would simply know pornography when they saw it. So, if they don't know today, obviously, it is going to lend itself to some complexity, right? This word porneia, actually, gets used all over the place in Scripture, and it has a broad diversity of meanings. Sexual immorality, 
uh, as it is in this passage, adultery, uh, incestuous relationships, um, whatever, right? It's kind of like this catch-all. And I want to take like an important sidestep, and uh, I know it's a snowy winter day and we're talking about a heavy topic. I should, probably shouldn't do this, but I want to take a little bit of a sidestep and talk about biblical interpretation for just a moment. I know we're already nerding out, but as I told you, this passage is famously difficult to translate, famously hard. And in fact, as I was studying, I found out that there are seven decent ways that you can think about this word that have drastically different outcomes in the way that we live our lives. I mean, just imagine that. Here's one word that could be translated seven different ways. Uh, and actually, I'm not just saying like, you know, weirdos have just thrown out random words or we know there are seven translations. I mean, qualified biblical scholars have come to seven different conclusions as to what this uh, word actually means. In fact, one uh, kind of popular translation actually claims that it's just incestuous relationships, which would be a very, very, very narrow and weird marker for why Jesus would say a divorce is appropriate, right? Only in the case of incest, right? And so they've taken that to mean only in incest can you actually have a divorce. That's kind of crazy. And the reason why I want to highlight that for just a moment is that this is crucial because it means that you could be reading the Bible, you could be even read, be reading a decent commentary and still walk away with, like, the wrong answer. Every time we approach Scripture, we need to approach it with a healthy amount of fear. This is not something we want to walk into with overconfidence, right? Definitely not just soul trust in ourselves and our own abilities. No, community... The Holy Spirit, quality scholarship, and research are all necessary components for actually understanding and applying Scripture. All right, side note over. Anyway, I think the simplest translation makes the most sense here. Sexual immorality or sexual wrongdoing, uh, which in a marriage is most likely talking about adultery, is probably the best translation. In the case of adultery, the marriage is null and void. Sex is actually intertwined with the very nature of marriage. It says the two shall become one flesh. I want you to recognize that sex is kind of a strange thing. It's sacred. It's much more sacred than we tend to realize. And you have to realize, too, the culture that you grew up in in, you know, modern-day America has, like, morphed our understanding probably irrevocably about sex, right? Like, we all like to think that we're enlightened and we're free thinkers and we always think the right thing, and honestly, it's not true. Like, your ideas about sex have been shaped by the culture very, very early on throughout your life, and it becomes something that I don't think uh, Scripture actually means it to be. I think it means something completely different. Sex was meant to be something beautiful, a divine gift, good, uh, something good shared only between a man and a woman. Now, we're going to get to singles in a second, uh, but if God has his way, I believe that the norm uh, for people who are supposed to get married is that you would have one marriage, one sexual partner, and that that is it. Everything other than that is a result of sin getting in the way. Even death gets in the way of this actually happening, but that is the ideal. To have sexual relations with someone else is to be married to them in sort of like a small and intimate way. This gift is meant to be only between two people, and now this gift that is meant to be shared between those two is now shared with another. This is also a fitting doctrine, and you can see why it makes sense why sex before marriage would be a challenging thing, would be a, a thing that would harm a marriage. To share this good gift outside of marriage in any way is to miss out on the good plan that God has made for humanity. Now, I want you to recognize, especially if that's like kind of hitting you hard in this room right now, 
there's a good potential that many of us in this room have not actually lived up to that ideal. That is a high and difficult and challenging standard. And if that's you right now in this room, I want you to recognize that while the guilt might be there, the shame does not have to be. In fact, that should be a guide to sin in general. As is often the case, Jesus gives us a third way that is better than any cultural ideas we can bring into sex and marriage. One camp says that to sleep with someone outside of marriage is to make you dirty and irrevocably broken and worthless and you should be a shameful and worthless person. One camp says that it's no big deal at all and you should just follow all of your sexual impulses because they're inside of you and they're good. Jesus says, you have broken my law, but I can forgive you. Are there consequences for sexual immorality? Of course. Will you still carry those things in spiritual, relational, psychological ways? Yes. But none of those are outside of Jesus' power to redeem or to forgive. So Jesus says that when one partner commits adultery, divorce is an appropriate but not a mandated option, which is an important thing to see. That even in this, we see multiple stories throughout the uh, New Testament and the Gospels where Jesus interacts with people uh, where there is a mandated and lawful punishment for what they have done wrong and that Jesus freely and openly forgives it. And that's still an option in a marriage, even one that has been broken by sexual immorality. So when else does the Bible say that divorce is appropriate? 1 Corinthians 7 uh, 15 through 16 says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, like the brother, or in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's interesting to note here that the situation is where a believer and an unbeliever are married and get a divorce. Uh, most likely what this was dealing with in the birth of the early church is when someone uh, would marry someone else who is not a Christian, right? So, or like uh, maybe one of the partners becomes a Christian after being married. And so you end up with this very complex situation where you have one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse. And Paul says you can't control them. You can't enslave yourself to someone who does not believe in God. And really, when you think about it, when we're talking about a marriage where God does not exist or where like, uh, you have an unbelieving spouse, we're really not talking about the same thing. I say this all the time uh, whenever we're doing like marriage counseling or I'm prepping for a wedding or something like that. Uh, for non-Christians, like, weddings are a fancy, or marriage really, is like a fancy party, some government form, and then a tax write-off. Like, what does that even mean? And honestly, I'm not interested in it. Like, the last thing that I am worried about, and it's gotten me into trouble before, is actually signing that marriage document, like the license or whatever. I'm like, no, we are having a good time. We're celebrating something beautiful, and people are like, but we're not legal yet. And I'm like, I don't care about that. Get somebody else to sign it, right? The most important thing for Christians, actually, is that we are signing a covenant with our lives between God and two people for their good and for his glory for their sanctification and for his avenues of blessing so that we might model actually the relationship between Jesus and his church. Like that is what we are doing on a wedding day, not just signing some form. So you can see where if one spouse does not believe the way that God has designed marriage and one spouse does, they're not actually talking about the same thing, right? There's actually a small little nugget of hope in this passage. You can read it one way or the other, and I'm, I'm choosing to read it the hopeful way. 
Verse 16 says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It seems like what Paul is sort of admonishing the church to do here is he is saying, if you're in a, a marriage where your spouse does not believe, I'm calling you first to live as God intended you to live, by loving Jesus first, by he being your primary and your first and your most important love. Live as a Christian. And if that upsets your spouse, you're able to share the gospel with them, but also to allow them to leave. The result is that you get to stay with Jesus, your best love, your spouse gets to hear the gospel, and your spouse also gets freedom to leave. It's kind of like the best case scenario all the way around. So, those are two more examples, or I guess the first one that we also already read, and then also the second one from Paul. So the question remains, when can I get a divorce? I want to say never. Like, it feels like that's what the thrust of this scripture tells us, but because of the hardness of the heart, I'm compelled to say the sin of divorce is sometimes necessary when to stay would cause more sin. The sin of divorce is sometimes necessary when to stay would cause more sin. We'll get into a second, but when the singles disi- single disciples heard this, uh, they thought it would be better not to marry. Like, it's crazy that we just read that, and then we were like, oh, that's, that's a really nice thing that you said there, Jesus. It was cool that you smacked down those Pharisees, so that was neat. Single disciples immediately reacted, and they were like, well, if that's the rule, then maybe we just shouldn't get married at all. I think that speaks to the heaviness and the seriousness with which we need to take the discussion of divorce at all. This is something we've had to do in our marriage. It's actually a rule in our marriage. We cannot joke about divorce. Uh, It's a big deal because I joke about everything. That's how I approach life, right? We treat it at our house like the boogeyman. I'll say a cuss word before I say divorce in my house. We don't play about it. It's a cancer. It's a rot. It's a decay. The point is this, and I hit it earlier. We need to keep divorce out of our minds as an option. It's never good. And as long as we're worried about and focused on the allowable forms of divorce, I think we're missing the boat entirely. But because of our sins, there are times when staying in a marriage will actually cause more sin, and you have to do something that is wrong in order to not do even more that is wrong. What about a situation uh, when a spouse becomes a physical danger to the other spouse or to the children, if there are any involved? To stay would cause even more harm. What about a situation where one spouse is engaging in sexual relations outside the marriage? Jesus talks very clearly about that. What about a situation where one spouse is lost deeply in an addiction and refuses to get better, refuses to seek help? These are all possible scenarios, and there have to be thousands of more because people are complex and relationships are complex, where to stay in the relationship is going to cause more sin to happen. And so while it is never the good thing, while it is never the ideal thing, sometimes the wise thing is to get a divorce. So how do you know what that is? How do you know when that is? That's the real question that we're getting to, right? It's the same question the Pharisees are asking, right? 
Well, you're not going to come to the right answer by reading a book uh, that you saw from that unlicensed counselor that you follow on Instagram, right? Like, I don't think that's the source. You're not going to come to the right conclusion, uh, even really going to a non-Christian counselor, which I'm, I'm pretty pro-counseling, actually. Uh, but this is one situation where going to a Christian that doesn't believe the same, or going to a counselor that doesn't believe the same things you do about marriage, it's going to be difficult to find the right conclusion. You're also not going to come to the right conclusion by talking to your friends uh, about your spouse or your marriage uh, in general, right? so easy when you're sitting there talking to one person who's presenting themselves as the victim and the one who has suffered the most to just be a good friend and be like, yeah, he's a monster. Yeah, she's crazy. No, instead, if you find yourself in this place where you are actually toying out the idea of a divorce, you need to work it out with fear and with trembling, with much deliberation, with much prayer, with wise counsel, talking to a pastor, time and soul searching, with scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then and only then, divorce may be your option. Now, for those of you who have been divorced, I have good news. Forgiveness is here. Two things we know about God, he hates sin and he forgives freely feels like a paradox, but that is the beauty of who God is. He's simultaneously just and gracious to us. If you've gotten a divorce and you feel any bit of like self-loathing or shame over that, know that that is not from God. God wants to look on you the same way that he looked on the woman caught in adultery. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus actually walks up on this scene uh, where they had caught a woman in the act of adultery and drug her out, and they were about to uh, kill her in the streets. Jesus walks up on that story. He actually calls out the sin existent in those who are about to stone her. And Jesus, fully aware of the situation, fully aware of everything that she had, been, she had ever done, not just what they just caught her in, fully aware of everything that she had ever done, he chooses to call out the sin in her accusers, calls her over and saves her life, and then beckons her to go and sin no more. This exact same call, this exact same gift, this exact same forgiveness is available to anyone who would love and trust and follow Jesus. The difficult thing about talking about this is that we must live life with a grave seriousness about sin and a firm grip on the lifeline of forgiveness that Jesus offers to us. If we lean too far in one direction or the other, we end up missing out. That's why we say here at Dwell that the greatest thing about me is that I am loved by God and that he knows all the terrible things that I have ever done and still chooses to love me in spite of them, chooses to forgive me of those chooses actually to pay with his life for that forgiveness on the cross. That is the beauty of the gospel. And it comes to, to life here in this passage because there is no sin in a marriage or even in breaking a marriage that God cannot forgive. And so if you find yourself in this situation where you have actually had a divorce, know that you can recognize the ways in which you were wrong in that scenario. You can recognize the guilt that you bear, the responsibility but also fully and freely embrace the forgiveness that Jesus is offering to you. That does not define you. The love of God actually defines you. 
That does not shape all of your choices. Actually, the forgiveness of Jesus now can shape your life. All right. I'm a little worn out from all this divorce talk, but now we have to move on to the singles in the room. All right. For those of you who are not married, I know what you're thinking. Wow, this is really, really serious talk about divorce. It's kind of scary about marriage. Maybe we should castrate ourselves, right? That's what you're thinking. No, that's crazy. Anyway, uh, that's actually what the disciples were thinking. Here we go. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his, disip- or with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only, to those, only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Wow. All right. (sighs) Here we go. Sermon number two. I just said eunuchs three times in a row. Let's jump in. Here we go. Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying, which is a Jesus way of saying. This one's going to sting a little bit. Because of how people view singleness even back in Jesus' day. Our friend Craig and Colorado's greatest biblical scholar says it this way. God has designed some people not to marry, but apparently not too many, right? So first he lists off listing, or he starts off by listing two types of eunuchs that the religious folks of the day uh, would have recognized. The word eunuchos usually refers to a castrated male. That's right, we're doing it. But could also be used to describe a man who chooses not to marry or even a man who is married but cannot produce children. The first type that he lists is people born without the ability to have sex. Uh, This first type could be for any number of reasons from birth. God made some people who will physically not have sex and never have sex. It's probably the result of the fall, which introduced so many different uh, birth defects and problems and challenges. It's also not outside of God's plan. Let's actually recognize that for just a moment. Now, sure, we could get into, like, the problem of evil and all of that kind of complexity, but the fact remains, we need to recognize it, that all of us are born with something that we just can't do, right? I was born never to dunk a basketball. And I know that is a really stupid thing to compare to sex, but I think the problem is that in our society, we put such a high pressure on sex that we would see somebody born with some other type of disability or physical deformity, and we're like, oh, that's kind of sad. And then we'd see somebody born never to have sex, and we're like, what a tragedy. That is messed up. That's broken. This cannot stand, right? Our culture has such a fascination and focus on sex that we don't realize that it's no less unfair if you never have sex than if you were born without the ability to walk. The second type, a eunuch made by uh, humans, was actually a person, uh, typically actually this was a person that like worked in like some sort of governmental function. This is one of those things where like, I don't know how you got this job and I don't know what ladder you had to climb. This is one of those things where you don't wanna be too good at your job. Because basically if you got really, really good at it, you would be put in charge of the king's harem and then uh, you would have to be they would make sure that you would never, like, you know, actually enjoy the king's harem while you were in charge of it, okay? So let's just leave it at that. That's how you would be a eunuch uh, made by man. This could be the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, actually, in Acts that we see uh, where uh, he was, like, shared the gospel with and came to know Jesus, right? But that's neither here nor there. The third case is the one that we're interested in today, eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Now, I am 98% sure that Jesus here isn't talking about performing some sort of surgery on yourself just to become a eunuch for the kingdom of God. I think what he's talking about is that there are people 
who decide and come to know that their best calling in life from God is to serve the kingdom of God by being single. And he concludes it by saying this, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. He knew it would be hard because we put so much pressure and focus on marriage as if it's the end-all be-all. And then, oddly enough, we follow a single savior and his merry band of single followers. It's crazy. For some people, it is the best good in their life to actually remain single so that they can better serve the kingdom of God. That is God's good plan for some of us. I could tell you stories and stories about single heroes of the faith, like St. Francis who hugged lepers and went to Israel to share the gospel with an Islamic sheikh at like the risk of his own life, something he probably couldn't have done if he wasn't a single guy. Or even of Lottie Moon, a single teacher who risked her life to go and share the gospel in China. It's partially responsible for the revival that continues to spread there through this day. But instead, I want to talk to you actually about a single man that was very important in my life. His name was Kevin Smythe. Uh, he worked with ninth grade boys in a Sunday school class. He was never married. None of us really knew why. His parents were older, and he took care of them. He worked for the school system, and he taught me how to play tennis and racquetball. And I now realize, now that I'm older, that probably wasn't just because of my like, natural talent and prowess on the court that he was doing that. He was doing that so that he could actually invest in me. Out of the kindness of God and his grace towards me, called a guy named Kevin to just invest in me, to listen to me, to hear my problems and actually care about them, to talk to me about Jesus, to help me whenever I was facing something difficult, to be that person that I could talk to about stuff that I couldn't talk to my parents about. It was a beautiful thing, and I just can't imagine like how my life would be different if Kevin had like forced himself into a marriage. Like What a different person he would be. How different would I be? And all the other young men that he helped disciple and bring up and guide in life. I mean, I remember when I first felt called to ministry, I was 15 years old. Kevin was the first person to rejoice with me. I mean, it was just a, a beautiful thing. All because he actually had the strength and the courage to stand up to the cultural pressure to get married and actually live out his life chasing his kingdom calling. Today, actually, I wear this mustache in his honor. I know you had a lot of questions about it. You were all wondering about it. Of course he had a mustache, right? Anyway, single people have long been used by the kingdom of God. The second idea is that to stay kingdom or to stay single for the kingdom of God means that you are going to miss out on something in life. Let's take a second and actually recognize something that's difficult about this. You will miss out on marriage. But the result of living is that you're going to miss out on something. Can I tell you what I'm going to miss out on? I already mentioned I'm never going to dunk. Probably also never going to surf. God called me to a landlocked state for some reason. Sure, I could do the little thing where, like, oh, I stood up on the board and got a picture and went home. No, I want to be a gold medal surfer. I don't know if they get medals or nothing, okay? So I'll probably never surf. I may never go to Africa. I don't know. It sounds cool, but there's a lot of places to travel. I will never be married to a really tall woman. It sounds interesting. I don't know. It could be cool. I'm only married to short women, all right? In fact, just one. But uh, it seems like an interesting thing, and I'll never get to do it. I'll never run a marathon. 
I'm too lazy, and there's not enough ice in the world to actually bring down that level of inflammation in my body right now. Like, there's just no way I'm not actually going to be doing it. Now, if you're single in this room and you feel like I'm mocking your pain a little bit, I am sorry about that, right? It is stupid for me to compare all of these things to marriage. You can send me an email if you want to leave the church and just put the date of this sermon in there and I'll get it, right? Like, I get it, right? It makes sense. But here's what I'm saying. You're going to miss out on something, but everyone misses out on something. Have you ever been in that really dark place in your mind where you're, like, jealous of someone or you're seeing something that somebody else is doing in their life? And it's easy to get locked into, like, this, like, feedback loop where you're just telling yourself, man, I'm missing out on this. I'm missing out on this. I wish that could be my life. I wish I could be that person. It's not the reality of life. You cannot have all that is good in life. You cannot go everywhere that is interesting. You cannot do everything that seems fun or appealing to you. But in fact, the best life is lived being exactly who God made you to be. Maybe that's single. Maybe that's married. Maybe that's with kids. Maybe that's without kids. The beautiful thing is in God's good kingdom and his plan for us, he has a diversity of callings, and he has one for you. Your life's going to be best lived if you're actually chasing after that. The other thing that I've noticed is that in the kindness of God, when he calls you to sacrifice for his kingdom, he always compensates you with more blessing than you can imagine. And I don't mean like if you get called to singleness, then you'll, you know, drive a Ferrari or something like that. I don't think that's how it works. Although you got more freedom to do what you want to do. So maybe, I don't know, I'd get in trouble if I brought a Ferrari home. But uh, single folks, go for it, right? Uh, I don't know. But what I really mean, though, in terms of blessing, it's not some sort of prosperity gospel. It's that some people have had pretty hard lives and have actually been compensated by God with extra amounts of joy, with extra amounts of community and family, with extra amount of purpose, with extra amounts of insight, with extra amounts of revelation from him. So much so that one very famous single man actually said in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Man, if you don't li believe that you can live a life that is good and beautiful while still remaining single, man, then you've got a bone to pick with Paul. You're basically negating everything that he just said. He counts all the things that he has sacrificed as rubbish, as loss, for the sake of gaining Christ. Maybe God wants you to be single for his kingdom. Maybe he wants you to be single for a season for his kingdom. And instead of living in that season, just waiting to get out of it and working really hard to move past it, you should actually embrace it and see the unique and special ways that God has called you to serve the kingdom in that season. Maybe God has called you to be single forever. Maybe that is his plan for your life. And I want to say to you, I know that it is culturally strange that no one's going to understand it. You're even going to get pushback from people in the church. But man, I want to be, and I want to speak for all of Dwell Church here to say, we want to be your biggest champions. We want to be your biggest cheerleader. If that's what God has called you to do, we want to step in and be your family. We want to be your biggest fan. We want to help you navigate that in any possible way that we can. All right, so we're done now, right?
No, there's still more. This passage keeps on going. I'm sorry, guys. 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little ones come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. All right, here's all I'm going to say because it's late. Uh, All right, children are cool. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, You should lay hands on them, but not in, like, an aggressive way. All right? Jesus did it. You should, too. Uh, That's it for that one. All right. I've talked a long time. Here's application. Are you ready for this one? It's going to be speedy. All right? If you're a notes person, you're going to suffer. If you're married, don't get divorced. If you feel like you need to get divorced, reach out, and we can process whether or not this is a good option for you. If you're divorced, accept God's forgiveness. If you're single, maybe stay that way. Serve the kingdom, or at least serve the kingdom while you are that way. And if you see a kid, love and honor them like Jesus did. That's it. Let's pray. Ben, you can come on back up. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, God, we uh, come to you as people uh, desperately desirous of your good and beautiful plan for our lives, God. God, I pray for every type of person in this room right now, God, whether single, whether married, whether divorced, uh, whatever the case is, God, all the the messiness of human relationships, God, I pray that you would be in our lives, God, that you would guide us. God, give forgiveness to those who need it. Uh, God, give guidance in difficult situations to those who need it, God. God, give direction to those who need it. God, for those of us in this room right now who may even be contemplating and thinking divorce, God, just ask that you would guide us as only you can. God, you would show us what the right option is. God, I pray that you would bring people uh, into those lives and into those marriages. God, give them the freedom and the boldness to reach out. God, for those of us who are single in this room, God, I pray that you would just continue uh, to lead and guide and direct God. God, I pray that if you are calling someone to a lifetime of singleness, God, that uh, you would guide them to stop wasting time trying to chase somebody else's dream. God, that you would give them a beautiful passion and zeal for your kingdom and for your calling over their lives, God. Show them how to live this life, even in a culture and a world that doesn't understand it. And God, for all of us, I pray that you would just meet us where you are, or where we are. God, I pray that you would give us forgiveness when we need it. Give us direction when we need it. God, give us an extra dose of your Holy Spirit to guide us along the way. Reveal yourself through Scripture. And help us to take this hard saying and receive it into our lives. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.